Well, let's get into the message today. I'm really excited about this series, uh, Going Where We've Never Been, and uh, uh, because I believe with all my heart that, and I know, that there's always more out there that we haven't experienced than what we've experienced. There's more in the unknown than there is the known. So the, the, the growth the growth that we, we have in store for us is always beyond where we are. And so that's why you have to get comfortable. You know, I know they talk about getting out of your comfort zone. You've heard that terminology. Well, that's what it's really all about. So I want to talk to you today about hope. The title of the message is Hope, the Key to All Things Christian. I want to talk to you about hope, especially of the eternal variety today. There's this uh, verse in 1 John 3, 3, Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. And so a lot of times we try to get people to change. I try to get you to change. You probably get ready to get me to change all kinds of ways, by threatening, by challenging, by arguing, all of that. But the greatest change agent is hope. Uh, Everyone that has this hope purifies himself. In other words, uh, eternal hope, especially of the eternal variety, is like jet fuel. It just prepares us to live at a whole, whole other level of investing our lives in other people, of obedience to God, of taking risk and walking away from things that we're drawn to but that are bad for us and bad for our friends and family. So we're going to jump over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and we want to read, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the, in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob. Now, all of that sounds like you know, pretty, you know, we admire him for that. But, but if, we're, if, we're, if we're not careful, we think, well, he just did all that because God spoke to him. And God was so powerful and God was so overwhelming that he had to do what God said. But if you'll pay attention to the next few words, we see what caused him to do it. What caused him to do it? It it was not blind obedience. It was obedience, and it wasn't obedience that could see everything that was in front of him, but it wasn't totally blind obedience. It said he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Circle the word promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things they, they were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. So I want to talk about some of the dimensions of hope. First of all, hope, I want to talk to you about hope and traveling beyond the country of self. 
God had called Abraham out of his family, right? Out of his familiar community and all of that. But more importantly, Abraham got called to, to, got called to abandon his way of doing things. His, his own natural self. Proverbs 43, 5 says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior, my God. So Abraham not only had to leave the familiar in terms of community and family, he also had to open up to letting go of his own familiar ways of responding to life and the circumstances of life. We're called to transfer our hopes from self to God. I believe this is harder than leaving our family culture our community culture, our peer pressure. I think it's the hardest thing is to leave your own familiar way of being and your own familiar way of doing things because it's so intuitive and it's so deeply ingrained to you that you will go around, and I will do it too, we'll go around talking about, well, I'm just this, I'm just that. I just can't do that. I, I just always talk like this. I just always respond like this. This is how, if you do this to me, this is how I'm going to respond because that's who I am. We talk, we talk, call this the country of self. To, to illustrate my, in first, to, to, well, let me read a verse to you that I got in my notes here. I think it's really important. Uh, 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 so when we talk about traveling beyond the country of self, it's, there's a great passage of scripture in the New Testament that, that Confirms that's a good thing to do sometimes. 2 Corinthians 1.9, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves, and we learned to rely on God who raises the dead. Now, to illustrate my point today, I'm going to give you, and this is going to be a very narcissistic moment in this message and in this series, but I'm not doing it to, to be narcissistic. I'm doing it because uh, I just want to be vulnerable. Okay, can I just be vulnerable? And um, uh, to illustrate my point, I want to talk to you about fell country a little bit. Now, uh, uh, how, many have done, how many of you have done some type of personality analysis? Uh, the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs. One of my favorite that I like to give, and I've got a, a young couple in the front row. We just, I just had them do it recently. Uh, when I do premarital counseling, I always have them do um, uh, what's called the flag page. Because it's just, it's just a little lighter and, and a little more fun than all those others, okay? So I kind of like it. And you'll see why I like it when I tell you about myself right now. Now, uh, here is, uh, here's my flag page. Uh, here's what it says about me. First of all, my country is peace. He has four different countries. Peace, control, fun, and perfect. Peace, control, fun, and perfect. That's he, he, so th this, this, this guy puts you in one of those four countries. So my, my major country is peace. I want everything to be calm. I want everybody to calm down. Let's not get too excited. I don't, I don't want too much chaos. Uh, I don't want too much disagreement. I don't, want, I, I don't, I don't really want to have a confrontation with you. I, I like to live in peace country. And my, my secondary country... Is perfect. I want to get things right. That's why when I, when I preach a sermon, I will quote other people because I want you to know that I, what I'm about to say is founded on not just my authority, but other people's authority who've done a lot more research than I have. And so now here's, here's also about my flag page. 
Uh, it, and I, I answered the questions. I didn't, I didn't manipulate the questions. It says I'm good on stage. It says I have a great sense of humor. <laughs> it says I, the, the number one thing is I'm a deep thinker. I, some of you drown in my depth of thinking. <laughs> one guy left the church. He told me, he said, your sermons are too complicated. I'm leaving. And he left. He's been to five other churches since then, so maybe it's not just me. <laughs> Persistent. I mean, disciplined, driven, committed, sincere at heart. If you look down below, it talks about my, 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 my people talents, or I love people. I'm faithful and I'm sensitive. So keep that in mind, I'm very sensitive, so be careful. <laughs> my task talents is competence, independence, deep thinker again. My creative talents are musical, curious, artistic. My leading talents are I'm strong-willed and I'm persistent. My wife can tell you that is true. I tend to be quieter about it, but I'm very strong-willed. And my showman talents are I, uh, I like to entertain people, so it's witty, great sense of humor, good on stage. Here's, uh, let me give you a little bit more, a little bit more narcissistic, self-centered preaching. Phil's home country, Peace. Phil voted for Peace Country as his home country with 138 votes. He highly values being a loyal and trusted friend who can be depended on by those who need him. He is happiest when his environment is tranquil, calm, and secure. He seeks to create a more peaceful world by building strong relationships with the people in his life and by getting along with everyone he meets. Phil's laid-back attitude makes it easy for anyone to be around him. That's cool, right? He doesn't make a fuss over things and tries to accomplish tasks by using whatever method he finds to be most efficient. He wants to be respected for who he is and doesn't want to have to prove himself to anyone. If trusted with the respect that he desires, he will give the same respect in return. Now, we've all done those kind of tests and we've learned things about ourselves. And I'm always surprised at how accurate they are. Uh, I just, I'm always surprised with all these personality tests, how accurate they are. But... Uh, I believe God has given us personality tests for two reasons. One, he's given us personality tests, so we'll have confidence in who we are. Secondly, he's given us personality tests, so we will be able to identify more easily the sin area in our life. Let me give you an example. One, one time, this many years ago, and I'm not going to give any detail, because I, you may know, it happened so many years ago, probably 15 or 17 18 years ago. I'll, I'll just say that there was an event that happened at our church that was very troublesome. And usually when something happens that's just troublesome, there's a troublemaker at the bottom of it. And um, I felt it was one person was probably responsible for this troublesome event that happened at our church. And so I arranged to meet him at what used to be the Pizza Hut in Franklin. I don't think it's a Pizza Hut anymore. I don't know why I like Pizza Hut. But um, anyway, uh, I like Taco Bell too, and they left Melford. So what, what, what can I say? Um, so I remember going out to meet this person who I felt was responsible. But you, you read all about my personality. I don't like these kind of meetings in the first place. I don't like them. And I knew he was not going to tell me the truth. And I remember walking around in the Pizza Hut parking lot praying. 
oh God, I don't want to do this. Please, please help me. I got, I got to deal with this. I got to get to the bottom of this. And the weirdest thing came to me. I know it had to be the Holy Spirit because I would have never, ever thought of this. I got this image of Moses striking the rock and water coming out. Now, now you may think that the, what, the thought that came to me next was that I should strike this man. <laughs> and, and truth would come out if I would strike him. But that's not, that's not what the Holy Spirit said to me that day. You know, Moses struck the rock. Then the second time when he, they needed water, he was told to speak to the rock. But instead of speaking to it, he struck it again. And because of that, he didn't get to go into the promised land. And the Holy Spirit said to me, I believe, I believe the Holy Spirit said to me, Moses did not know how to stop being the way he naturally was. Because in those days, shepherds, that's how they did it. It wasn't necessarily a miracle that he struck the rock and got water. Because water would get inside of rock crevices and, and the limestone would form a, a, a seal in the crevice. And they would, the shepherd would go bang that crevice with his rod and water would come out. So Moses was, was, instead of obeying God, he did what he had always done. He did what shepherds always did, and he, he cost him. He cost himself something very valuable. And so what the Lord said to me, I believe, that day, and what I got out of that is walking around in that pizza hut parking lot, was I want you to be different. I don't want you to be the peace perfect fell today. I want you to confront him. In fact... I didn't have 100% proof that he was responsible for what had happened, but I had a little bit of proof, so I, I decided right then and there I took a huge risk. I decided that I would tell him right away that I thought he was lying, and I did. I just went, well, I sat down at the table and went right at him. You're, you're, you're lying to me. You know you did it, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't even know how to act like that. And he just, he confessed everything right there, just confessed everything. You see, I see this over and over in the church. We get stuck because we, we, we do not know how, not, how to obey God when he tells us to do something that is counterintuitive to our natures. God, we, we disobey God when he tells us to do something that is not comfortable to our natural person, our natural man, our natural woman, with who we naturally are. And God is limited in how he can use us. We cannot go where we've never been. We cannot do what we've never done if we, don't, if we always keep doing what we've always done and we always keep acting like we've always acted. We're going to always stay stuck in the place where we were. I love this story uh, of uh, this, uh, the most famous air show performer test pilot in history is a man named Bobby Hoover. In fact, I just I know Steve uh, Johnson. Where are you, Steve? I know maybe he left. Uh, <laughs> Steve Johnson is a pilot, so I knew I asked him all to go. You know who Bob? Oh yeah, I met Bob Hoover. Everybody knows. Everybody who's a pilot knows who Bob Hoover is. The most famous stunt pilot in the world. Well, one day he's at an air show. And he's, he's doing stunts at 300 feet above the ground. And the engine goes dead. And he was, he was such a great pilot. And through, but, but almost magically, though, he got that plane landed without dying, obviously. And so he found out 
not too long afterward that they had put the wrong fuel in the plane. So he goes and he finds the mechanic who had serviced the plane and he hunted him down and he found him and he says to him, to show you, I'm sure you'll never do this again. I want you to service my plane tomorrow. How many of us would have just been ripping the guy apart? Getting the, make sure the guy gets fired. But Bob Hoover was a different kind of man. And he knew... See, some of you could really use that example today because you keep doing what's so predictable. Everybody's got you figured out. They know exactly what you're going to do. They know how to manipulate you because they know exactly what you're going to do. They've got you totally figured out because you never, you never come out of left field. You never let God show you a different way to be. You never let God... See, sometimes... You, you, see, you, the, the, the Bible says this, says it this way, that, that uh, those... Who are, who are led by the Spirit are like the wind, Jesus said to, to Nicodemus. That those who are led by the Spirit are like the wind. You don't know where they're coming or where they're going because they're like the wind, because they're led by the Spirit of God. Who's in charge of your life? You or God? Who's in charge of how you respond? You or God? You're, are you always on auto, to use the Bob Hoover uh, uh, metaphor, are you always on automatic pilot? Or can God... Have you be forgiving and kind when it doesn't seem logical? Or can God have you confront somebody and be bold when you need to be bold? Are you stuck in being you all the time? Hope is traveling beyond yourself. Hope is also traveling beyond the country of worldly security. Genesis chapter 3 verse 5 through 9 now Lot was moving about with Abraham. Lot was his nephew. And he had so graciously brought Lot along. He didn't have to bring Lot along. But he also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abraham's herds, herders and Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. It's not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now this is an extraordinary thing that Abraham's doing here. He's the patriarch. He's in charge. He can call the shots. And what makes it even more dramatic is if you looked in one direction, you would have seen, if you looked to the south, you would see the well-watered plains of Jordan. You can read that in the text if you keep reading. If you look the other way, it, it, I've, I've been to that part of the world, and I remember uh, going on a tour over there, and a, a, an Arab guide told us one day, he said, he said God had uh, two handfuls of rocks when he created the world, and he distributed one handful of rocks all over the world. He said the other handful of rocks, he poured them on Palestine. <laughs> so that's what the choices were. A, a, a bunch of rocks or the well-watered plains of Jordan. Beyond Jordan lay Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to get back to that in a moment. And uh, 
worldly security is, like anything else that God puts us, is not inherently evil, by the way. We're, we're taught in many places in the Scripture to invest in, appreciate, enjoy the temporal blessings of earthly life. The material world, though, is there to serve us. We're not meant to serve it, and some of us get that wrong. Psalm 62.10 says, Though your riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. So Abraham constantly built altars, but there's not a single instance of Lot building an altar. So we know they, they had two different ways of thinking. Someone said a man who is weak in his devotion, worldly in his desires, will inevitably be strong, uh, will inevitably be wrong in his decisions. So Lot, uh, this is a very telling verse in verse 11. So Lot chose for himself. He didn't consider the results of his choice on his kids or his family. He didn't consider what choice would demonstrate gratefulness, honor toward Abraham. He only considered what would put him at a, an immediate advantage. There are three dimensions of worldly security that I want, to, I want to mention to you right now. One is money and material increases. Lot's mind started doing the math. If I go that direction, the real estate prices are go, going to go up. My property is going to be worth more in a few years because everybody's, everybody's moving towards Sodom. If I go that direction... My life's going to be easier. My crops are going to grow. If I, if I go that direction, I'm going to be in the suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we can, I don't have time to get into it today, but we have much, much evidence that, Sodom, that, that he and his wife were very attracted to the, to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It looked a lot more inviting, a lot more interesting than the rocky soil in the other direction. What we see about Lot. Now, Lot wasn't a bad man, by the way. Don't sit here and think, well, Lot, he was a horrible person. He wasn't. The Bible even calls him righteous. He was a good man. It's good. The church is full of good people. I said the church is full of good people who aren't totally sold out to God. I don't mean to be mean, but that's just the truth. Lot didn't have God in his equation. Now, now, remember I said a minute ago, it's kind of blew past it, but it's a big deal. Abraham built four, we, we have recorded that he built four altars. He was always, every, everything that happened in his life, he would build an altar and pray and sacrifice to God. Lot, we don't see a single altar. We don't see one single time in Lot's entire life that he ever built an altar and sought the Lord. He was on automatic pilot. He was stuck in thinking like the world. He didn't have God. He was a two-dimensional decision maker. He didn't have God in the equation of his decisions. Abraham was like, well, it doesn't matter which way I go. My eternity, I, I, I'm set because I've got God. God has promised me that he's going to turn me into a great nation. I have all the promises of God. It doesn't matter if you put me, on a, uh, if you put me in a rock pit or on a well-watered plain. It doesn't matter because I've got the God factor in my life. Lot had to take care of himself. It, it, it's, it's like uh, Abraham thought like the little boy I heard about who many, uh, some time ago went into a little store 
and, uh, you know, corner grocery store, and there was a big bucket of suckers. And the, the manager, the owner, looked at the little boy and said, you know what? If you want to stick your hand in there, you can have all the suckers that you can handle in your hand. And the boy just looked at him and looked at the suckers and looked back at him like, like he was embarrassed. So the, the owner just takes his hand and grabs a whole pile of suckers and gives it to the boy. They get outside and his mother looked at him and said, what was that about that you were so shy you wouldn't even stick your hand there and get suckers? He said, I wasn't shy. He said, his hand's bigger than mine. I'm going to trust God because his hand is bigger than mine. If I trust God to meet my needs, I'm no, I, I'm, I know that he's going to take care of me. And I've watched this throughout my 30, 40 years of ministry. I've watched the people who were afraid to trust God, who had to always take care of themselves and, and, and always afraid. If I, if I give my life to God, I won't be able to buy a house. I won't be able to send my kids to college. I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to do that. I'm telling you, it's a lie. It's a lie. Abraham ended up richer than, richer than Lot because he was trusting God. And I'm not saying you're going to be richer than anybody else if you trust God. You will be richer. It's not always in things that money can buy. But you'll be richer, I will promise you. So uh, Lot's thinking was... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I got, let me get back on track here. Money and material uh, increase. The second thing is ego, honor, and the fear of criticism. Lot's thinking, i got to go home and face my wife and tell her I turned down the well-watered plains of Jordan and the chance to send our kids to the best schools. And i got to face my friends at the, at the golf course, at the, at the country club, and explain to them when they find out about Abraham's offer. And I, I don't want them to know and explain the dumb decision I made to go live in a pile of rocks instead of the well-watered plains of Jordan. What would please the Lord was not in Lot's emotional or psychological process. It wasn't in his, as, as, as some people say, plausibility structure. The third thing that, uh, that uh, uh, is a dimension of worldly security is morality, mortality, I meant to say, and the fear of death. This is a big one. When our frame of reference is temporary or temporal instead of eternal, life is just a race to retirement. In the movie The Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams, the Jewish 100-meter Olympic runner who actually did win the gold in that all those years ago, he said, I feel that when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. What's he saying here? On the most obvious level, he's saying the main thing I want to do is win the gold medal. And this one thing will define me. For you, it might be something else. For you, it might be the main thing is I want to get married. Or the main thing is I want to get my dream job. Or the main thing is I want to do well financially in my career. Or the main thing is I want to get my kid in the right college. Or in Lot's case, I want to get rich in the well-watered plains of the Jordan. But what about eternity? What about forever? You know what happens to people when they get everything? They start trying to figure out a way not to die. It was reported recently that Jeff Bezos, who's worth $200 billion. Think about that for a minute. Just let that sink in. Not $2 billion, not $20 billion, 
$200 billion. That was of August 8, 2020. I think, did he get divorced after that or before? So he's probably worth $100 billion. <laughs> It's interesting, though, they, they're reporting, you probably saw those headlines, too. He's, he's now investing in an anti-aging research. <laughs> Ray Kurzweil, who is an a, a, a electronic genius, The, the first keyboard we ever had at Bethany was a Kurzweil. And he's, he's made gazillions of dollars as an entrepreneur. And, and he, he is trying to live forever. He, he, his diet for breakfast consists of berries, dark chocolate, infused with espresso, vanilla soy milk, smoked salmon, and mackerel. Sounds terrible, right? Stevia, porridge, green tea. Then he eats nothing for the rest of the day but takes 100 supplements at over $1,000 a day. My, my, what's your, say, what's your point, Pastor Phil? My point is, once a person has all of his earthly desires fulfilled, he still fears death. Abraham started off with eternal life, and that gave him an extraordinary temporal life because he started out with the eternal life. So he was much better at doing earthly life because he was all set for heavenly life. Guys, we got the right, we already got what Jeff Bezos' 200 billion won't buy. We already got what Ray Kurzweil's millions won't buy. Jesus said, God sent his son, John 3.16. Whosoever believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What's going to happen to you if you start living in the light of eternity? It will transform you. It will transform you, I will promise you. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, God has set eternity in their hearts. That's what Ray Kurzweil's. That's why he's doing that, because God put eternity in Ray Kurzweil's heart. God put eternity in Jeff Bezos' heart. But he doesn't know how to connect what's in his heart with the heart of God. But you are here today, and you know, you know the secret. You've been able to connect the eternity that's in your heart with the eternity that's offered from God. All of us who are made in the image of God have an intuitive awareness that life does not stop at the grave. The Bible contains the most compelling and authoritative words ever said about life beyond the grave. First, it teaches that anyone who dies will be resurrected. Acts 24, 15, I have the same hope in God, he says, as these men themselves, so that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Secondly, we know that everyone will give an account of their life before a holy God. Hebrews 9.27 rather says people are destined to die and after that face judgment. This understanding will cause us to invest our lives in things that outlast the grave. When we give you an opportunity to serve, We are not imposing something upon you, but we're giving you the opportunity to invest your life in something that will outlast the grave. Last I checked, the only thing that will outlast the grave is people. Eternity is going to be populated with people. 
your, your, your cars and your houses and your land and your bank accounts aren't going to get there. But the people in your life are all going to show up in eternity. Either separated from God or with God. That should be the mission of the church. Is to connect people with God. And connect them with eternal life. Lot was a good man. But he didn't live his life with an eternal frame. Abraham's altars defined his whole life. As I said a moment ago, he, he, Abraham built an altar of praise. He built an altar of prayer, an altar of peace, and an altar of provision. You go back and study it. Look up his altars. You will see that those are the themes of the four altars that he built in his life. He learned, he learned that from the idolatrous, idolatrous and pagan culture around him, you know. That's where he learned about sacrifice and altars from what the, all the idolaters and the pagans were doing. So if you want to know how to serve God, if you want to know how to really go somewhere with God, just look at how people are investing themselves in sports and, and, and everything else and how they're going crazy to obtain everything and say, I'm going to put that energy toward God. The modern, and I want to say this with all kindness, but the modern and postmodern church has abandoned the altar. You don't raise your hand, but if I were to announce to, that tomorrow night an award-winning chef is going to be in this building and is going to prepare a free banquet for everyone who will come, how many of you would come? Don't raise your hand because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint you into a corner and embarrass you. But what if I said tomorrow night I'm calling you to prayer and we're going to have conversation, you and me, we're going to have a conversation with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How many of you would come? You know the answer, and it's embarrassing. We've abandoned the altar. We've not built our lives around communion with God. We've built around our lives around our personalities, our desires, our tastes, and those things are not evil. I'm not saying that. Most of the time, God lets me do exactly what I feel like doing. 99% of the time, God lets me do exactly what I want to do. I get to eat what, exactly what I want for lunch if I can find it and afford it. Um, I could give you a minute. I, I did not pray, God, can I wear this shirt today? Please, God. 99% of every decisions I make, you know, you know, you make 70 decisions a day, 2,500 decisions a, a month, and uh, uh, over a million decisions in your lifetime. About, about 999,000 of those are, are, are something, not, not that many, but 900,000. You get to make, do exactly what you want to do. God's not interested in, in micromanaging your life. But God wants permission to interrupt any decision you're about to make. He, he, he will, you, you can't get into his kingdom unless you give him that. Unless you say, okay, God, you have my permission to interrupt my life anytime you want to, no matter what it costs me. Abraham had eternal things. So let, let me, uh, let's, let, let's, let's close with this. I'm running a little over time. I apologize. Traveling, hope, let's, talk, let's finish by talking about hope and tra traveling to a preferred future. Two angels arrived in the evening and Lot was sitting in the pathway of the city, gateway of the city, the Bible says in Genesis 19.1. Now think about this for a minute. Lot, the last time we saw him in chapter 13, he was just living on the plains of Jordan, the well-watered plains of Jordan. But then in chapter 19, we find him sitting at the gates of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You know what that meant? The gates of the city is where the government, governance took place. He had gotten on the city council in Sodom and Gomorrah. What's that about? Some of you know the rest of the story. Those angels that found him, some of the men of the city were so given to sodomy and hostility that they tried to force them to turn over these guests over to them for their carnal pleasures. And, and Lot's ability to reason had become so warped and his relationship with God was so broken that, that instead of praying and trusting God in that moment, he offered his daughters to these perverted men. The next act in the drama, we see Lot's wife as they leave the city, as it's being, its judgment is pouring down, and she was unable not to look back, and she became a pillar of salt. And we know that it was more than just to look back because she couldn't, she wanted to see the train wreck because Jesus said, Remember Lot's wife. And in the next sentence, Jesus said, Whoever keeps their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. We know that Lot's wife's look back was because she longed for Sodom and Gomorrah. And she didn't want to leave the shopping malls and the women's clubs and, the, and the, 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 the wine mom fellowship that she had and all of that. So this was more than just not being able to take her eyes off a train wreck. Abraham and Sarah were, we don't need Sodom. God is going to take care of us. Lot's wife must have been thinking, what will I do without the security of Sodom? Then things got worse. Things got worse. Lot's daughters were afraid they were going to become extinct. There would be no descendants for their family. So they got their dad drunk and they conceived children with their father. And those two children were Ammon and Moab. And they were thorns in the side of Israel for almost the rest of Israel's time in the Old Testament. See, Lot raised his family to live in fear. And God, Lot raised his family to live in fear and acquiescence to the world. Abraham raised his family to live in fear and acquiescence to God. And that legacy continues today for Abraham. The Bible says in Genesis 4, 24, 1, Abraham was now very old and the Lord blessed him in every way. Which end do you want to your life? You want Lot's end? Or do you want Abraham's end to your life? Where's your hope? The approval of people or the blessing of the Lord? Where's your hope? In obtaining earthly things that you're sure will make you happy or the blessing of the Lord? Where's your hope in getting the approval and love of a certain person or group of people or the blessing of the Lord? Where's your hope? In your forceful personality or your winning personality or the blessing of the Lord? Where's your hope? In an ideology or a political movement or the blessing of the Lord? Are you ready to join me in entrusting your life to the only one who can overrule the decisions of humans and the powerful forces, the only one who can cause demons to tremble and the only one that conquered death, hell, and the grave? He is no fool, Jim Elliott said, who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. What will your decision be? You want to go where you've never been? Do what you've never done? Live a life of real adventure? Join me in following Father Abraham and his descendant, Jesus Christ.